The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for October 20th, 2021. It's your old pal Justin Robert Young joining you deep in the heart of Texas. We got a great show for you today. Indeed, may we be seeing it? Trip, trip, trip. Crack, crack, crack. A thaw. In the freeze between the Democratic factions. Few meetings this week. It looks like we're coming to a compromise on the Build Back Better bill. But will it be something that the progressives can swallow now that the momentum has begun to tilt against them? We will speak. Spend a lot of time on state politics this episode, including a look into that Virginia governor's race. Has Glenn Youngkin found an issue that can bring him outside of the pigeonholed Republican stance and indeed begin to speak to independents and maybe some Democrats? We explore the very, very messy situation in Loudoun County. And we will be joined by Politico's Mark Caputo. He normally covers Florida, but is taking a look northward in his most recent story about Brad Raffensperger. You might know that name. He's the Secretary of State of the Peach State and is one of Donald Trump's biggest enemies Somebody that he has said many unkind things about since the 2020 election and the fact that Georgia very narrowly went to Joe Biden. But unlike other Georgia politicians, Brian Kemp, Raffensperger is running directly into the criticism as he seeks to keep his job. Talk about that and get a little bit into Florida as well. Bird Fairs. We're talking. All right, we're talking. What could be better? Bernie and Mansion together. That is Bernie Sanders and Joe Mansion. Uh, staged a little media. Oh my God, did you guys just catch us leaving? Let's take a picture together. They had a little one-on-one conversation and boy, was it needed. Indeed, we might've seen hostilities at their worst, at least for now, between the two wings of the Democratic Party. Either 
quite have a Pokemon to represent them, like the conservative end of their Democratic Party has with Joe Manchin and the progressive end has with Bernie Sanders. And before they were all chummy, boy, did things get a little dicey. This weekend or last weekend, Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in the Charlotte Gazette Mail, a paper in Joe Manchin's home state of West Virginia, extolling the virtues of the still in flux Build Back Better bill. This is the reconciliation bill, not the bipartisan bill. And after extolling why this bill is going to be so amazing, Bernie adds this little kick in the ribs. And I quote, Poll after poll shows overwhelming support for this legislation. Yet, the political problems we face is that a 50-50 Senate, we need every Democratic senator to vote yes. Right now, we only have 48. Two Democratic senators remain in opposition, including Senator Joe Manchin. And that earned this receipt from Manchin, quote, this isn't the first time an out-of-stater has tried to tell West Virginians what's best for them, despite having no relationship to our state. Congress should proceed with caution on any additional spending, and I will not vote for a reckless expansion of government programs. No op-ed from a self-declared independent socialist is going to change that, end quote. I have told you on this program repeatedly, that the progressives only really have one move when it comes to Manchin and Cinema: Define the programs that they're for or against, and then either attack or defend those programs. That's it. The problem with the Build Back Better bill is that it's so large, they have been left with the only move being, hey, guys, tell us what you want or what you don't want. Mostly so we can attack you, so you can support what we want. And I don't think that that's been particularly effective, especially since we're here now. Guys, face facts. Manchin won. Bernie and the progressives hoped they could pressure Manchin and Cinema into voting for a package they liked. That pair held strong. Now, we can have a conversation if the progressives use too much stick when a few carrots might have done better. Maybe you pick something that you're going to sell out because you know this is going to be a negotiation. You know that that Joe Manchin is never going to go for the clean energy stuff. So maybe you, you, you decide to fold that into something else. But hell, that's in the past now. The reality is the progressives already caved from a $6 trillion bill and are somewhere between $3.5 and $1.5 trillion as of now, and it ain't going higher. The Biden White House has already signaled that some elements of the bill are on the chopping block, including free community college, that extended child tax credit may well get means tested if Joe Manchin has his say, which it looks like he does. And by the way, that makes it a much less useful political tool. That was something that, you know, we're going to get into how important building a relationship between a political party and parents are in the next segment. But it certainly helps when you're getting a little bit extra in the mail each and every month. If this is means tested to people under $60,000, which is the current plan by Joe Manchin, that is that many less people that will be affected by it. But that's not even the bad part. That's not even the bad part if you're a progressive. No, no, no. 
Get ready for this hard-to-swallow pill. Expansions to Medicare, including dental and vision, may be either cut or only funded for a few years, leaving it vulnerable to a Republican Congress or White House. Ditto to any kind of environmental measure that would cap or make more expensive coal, something that the Democratic senator from West Virginia has a tremendous stake in. But still, there are hopes for the Democrats that they might indeed pass something. Joe Biden met with both progressives and moderate delegates separate yesterday. You know, I'm not sure why the progressives drive the bus in the House. The moderates played their hand and lost last month when Pramila Jayapal and the progressive caucus left them at the altar on a vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Oh, by the way, it's not just Manchin that has moved further away from a deal in the last few weeks before this recent thaw. Indeed, Kirsten Cinema signaled that she would not even think about voting for any version of the Build Back Better reconciliation until the House passes the infrastructure bill that she negotiated in a bipartisan manner. And by the way, the big question. Where is Joe Biden? Well, he's been dotting the country, giving speeches about the Build Back Better bill, a bill that changes every stop that he's there. We don't know what's in it. He's not effectively able to sell it. And to be totally honest, nobody's electrified by a Joe Biden press conference to begin with. Ultimately, you can't sell a bill you can't explain. You can't say that a bill that is currently not in existence polls well. When we look back at this process for the Democrats, I think it's going to be pretty clear, considering how much this bill is getting sized down, that this could or should have been multiple bills. You can pass the ones you can, blame the opposition for the ones you don't, Get your mileage out of the legislation that is made law. You know, because we're going to see what happens when nobody is happy with this final product. And let me guarantee you this. Nobody is going to be happy with this final product. Then, of course, there's the doomsday scenario. That the cuts get too close to the bone for the progressives, and they decide it's not worth taking a victory lap for. In that case, ooh boy, do we got a whole nother set of problems. Let's turn our eyes to old Virginia, where the top issue in the governor's race in its final month is capital T, capital K. These kids! Well, at least if you're Glenn Youngkin, the Republican challenger, in a state that, as our friend Evan Scrimshaw likes to point out, is more blue than Alaska is red based on 2020 results, Youngkin needs an issue that resonates with independent and possibly conservative Democratic voters. The culture war over education has been an abstract issue for most of the nation, but recently got a horrifying news peg in Northern Virginia. So, 
How best do we begin the conversation surrounding the Loudoun County School Board? Loudoun County is in the north of Virginia. It's where Dulles's International, the Dulles International Airport is. In 2018, it was re- reported that the median, the median household income for Loudoun County was over a hundred and thirty-eight thousand a year. It's the median, middle of the road. This is a rich suburb of D.C. where rich people send their rich kids to school. Like many school boards of all stripes, they've been subsumed into the controversy surrounding both critical race theory and transgender issues. Madam Chair, I move to end public comment. One particular meeting of the school board went viral when the board cut off public comment as they discussed transgender issues. This particular scene was cited in a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland by the National School Board Association, which called for violent parents to be investigated under the Patriot Act. One man who went particularly berserk became the poster boy for culture war-obsessed culture war parents gaslit by conservative media gone wild. But let's focus on that guy. There's a problem here. Because that particular guy who went berserk at that Loudoun County School Board meeting reportedly had a real good reason to be that mad. According to a subsequent investigation by conservative outlet, The Daily Wire, the man in question, his ninth grade daughter was sexually assaulted in the girl's bathroom by a male student wearing a skirt. While juvenile records are sealed, the attorney for the father and daughter say that the offending student was charged with two counts of forcible sodomy, one count of anal sodomy, and one count of forcible fellatio. It was comments at that school board meeting specifically referencing that no student had been assaulted in a bathroom and then a subsequent interaction with an opposing activist that drove the man in question to the rage scene in the clips. All right, before we go any further, I I do want to pull this back a little bit. This is a messy situation, and there are likely more dominoes to fall. There appears to be ample reason to suspect that the school board covered up a horrifying crime, but time will tell as we learn more. Before we go any further, I want to highlight the humanity of this situation before we get into the inhumanity of politics. First, It appears as if a ninth grade girl was assaulted. She should not be forgotten in this. I'm sure we will find out more about the assaulter as we go on. And no matter what this person's space on our gender spectrum is, it's important to remember that if trans rights are human rights, which I agree with, then we also have to to agree that the trans community, like all communities, harbor the best and worst of humanity. 
And indeed, this young man may indeed be far closer to the worst. Pause. Because now I'm going to take this big, messy, pulsing, awful issue, one that very much deserves to be looked at, studied, and dissected so we might learn more about ourselves and the things we care about. Parents learning more about their kids, learning more about their governments, learning more about their school boards. We can all use this as a way to enrich ourselves. But that's not the game we're in right now. No, we're going to take the multifaceted situation that we have just described and dumb it down into the two-dimensional world of politics. And this is what that looks like. There is an election in two weeks, and the Republican challenger for governor, Glenn Youngkin, sees an opportunity to paint his opponent on the side of a culture war that allegedly, reportedly, hides a rape case for the greater good of protecting the ideology. We've already seen at least one pack commercial supporting Youngkin on this broader issue. You know, this isn't about left and right, after all. This is about a parent's right to have a say in how their children are raised and protected. You've been there from the beginning. The sleepless nights, the first steps, first scrapes, first day of school, first homework assignment. Because you're a parent and parents show up. Now, schools want to teach your kids hate-filled ideas. And Terry McAuliffe wants you to disappear. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. Tell Terry McAuliffe he's wrong on education. Because you're a parent, and parents show up. And I would bet that the further we get toward Election Day, that will be among the nicer ads. Conservative sharks are circling the Loudoun County prosecutor who sought to prosecute that irate father for his school board outburst, despite knowing the facts of his daughter's case. And more than that, the kid who sexually assaulted the irate man's daughter was transferred to another high school where he assaulted somebody else. That prosecutor is a close ally of Terry McAuliffe. Whether or not you believe the fundamentals of this race tilt toward Terry McAuliffe, which I do, this is not what you want to have dropped on your doorstep with so few days to go before the polls open. So where are we now in terms of that situation? Well, the once and future Governor of Old Dominion, Terry McAuliffe, has a 2.2% aggregate lead in the Real Clear Politics average. That is weighted down by Trafalgar Group's latest, which puts the race even. At the same time, the glittering stars of the Democratic galaxy have begun to descend. Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, Obama, and Biden himself will likely make their way to Virginia. Now what McAuliffe would love is for the Build Back Better bill to be passed. So when all of these big movers and shakers are there, they can talk about the great benefits of having Democrats in office. 
but we'll see whether or not that happens. It seems to this point unlikely. We are ready for crunch time. And indeed, your boy's going to be there. Booked my tickets. I am in Virginia for the last two days before that race comes to an end. Lock and load. Well, if I'm heading on the road, then that means the benefits of being a patron to this program have just gone up. Yeah, it's just that simple, man. I mean, because when I'm on the road, I'm working 24-7. So that means that all of the bonus podcast material, the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition, that means that the late edition is is just going to have more stuff that is gathered from Virginia. So I will be in Virginia on Sunday for that Sunday, Sunday, Sunday edition. And a lot of times when I'm gathering, uh, you know, sounds from the campaign, I'll drop it in a bonus podcast before the election. So I'll put out a, a, a Tuesday morning podcast when I don't normally put out a Tuesday morning podcast. But it is there for you. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And, and when I say that this doesn't happen without you, I genuinely mean it. Look, there's no reason for me to go to Virginia and go and cover these events unless I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for this podcast. This podcast sends me traveling because you deserve to have the eyes and ears of an untainted, honest broker covering these events and giving you my opinion on who is running a confident campaign, who's running an energetic campaign, and getting a sense of the boots of the ground of who's showing up to these different events. Just that simple. Head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you pledge at the $3 level, you get a bonus podcast on Monday morning. You get a bonus podcast on Thursday. The Monday episode chronicles everything that was said on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday programs. And the Thursday is the late edition. That is the latest that late breaking news gets covered in the PX3 calendar since our Friday edition is made earlier in the week. All right. Thank you. As always, you make my dreams come true. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today is a reporter for Politico.com who specializes in the state of Florida. He joins us today to discuss the the Sunshine State's northern neighbor, Georgia, and the differing ways residents on former President Donald Trump's enemies list are running for their seats. And we talk about Florida, too. His name is Mark Caputo. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thank you for having me. Good to be back. Uh, so, uh, this is something that normally when I talk to you, we, we usually talk about Florida because you do so much great reporting there. But, uh, this story that you have now is something that I found fascinating and it is one state to the North, specifically Georgia and their, uh, the, the race of one Brad Raffensperger, a, a MAGA super villain, at least in terms of how Donald Trump has targeted him, but somebody who is, Unlike Brian Kemp, who found himself in very much the same boat uh, targeted by Trump after the 2020 election in Georgia, has decided to take the other tact and really run directly against 
the the Trump criticism. Right. Uh, a few weeks ago, Donald Trump gave a rally in Georgia where he just got on stage and trashed every statewide Republican office holder, governor, lieutenant governor, the attorney general and the secretary of state. The secretary of state, Georgia secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, has a particular spot in Trump's heart uh, for criticism. Maybe heart would be the wrong organ. Uh, he, <laughs> he, he really he, he really doesn't like Ravensburger because Ravensburger did his job. That is, yeah. Ravensburger's job is to oversee elections as other secretaries of states and other uh, states do, overseeing elections. And the reality is, it's a fact that there was not widespread, systemic, significant voter fraud in Georgia that cost Donald Trump the election. What cost Donald Trump the election was the fact that he got fewer votes, which is yeah. perhaps yeah. to say what cost Donald Trump the election in Georgia was Donald Trump, not Brad Raffensperger. Now, one thing that is unique about Brad Raffensperger and something that I think would certainly uh, uh, rally up the 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 ire of Trump specifically is that Raffensperger was not shy about playing the media game. He wasn't shy about doing television. He wasn't shy about fighting back on Twitter. And one right. can only assume that the tape of Donald Trump calling Brad Raffensperger was not leaked to the press by Brad Raffensperger, or sorry, by by Donald Trump, it was likely leaked by Raffensperger. So, uh, uh, is is that part of it that that uh, Raffensperger is not shy for this fight? He wasn't shy in the fall and and winter of last year, and he's certainly not shy now as he's running for his office again. Right, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, not, let me add one to that. He's written a book. Yeah, uh, and and in in Raffensperger's book, he also t- targets Trump. So while other Republicans both office holders and those who understand politics say the best way to handle Donald Trump, if you're a Republican, is to shut up and take it. Uh, Ravensburg is not doing that. He's 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 waging what I call a kind of a, a damn the torpedoes campaign where he's like, no, the election was accurate. The election count was accurate. It was fair. And uh, I'm not going to be quiet about it. And in that respect, he's similar to Liz Cheney, the Wyoming congresswoman who had voted for Trump's impeachment after he incited the riot in the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, so th- those are both kind of enemies, number one and two, or two and one, depending on, on how you want to rank them in Trump world uh, for primaries. And in both cases, uh, Trump has primary candidates that he either uh, recruited or encouraged to run and that he's now endorsed uh, against both of them. In the case of Raffensperger, it's Jody Heiss, a uh, congressman from Georgia who would refuse to certify the election uh, when the election vote came before him in Congress. So it gives you an idea of where, where Heiss is. Yeah. One of the things I didn't get to in the piece is what happens after the primary? Like, you know, the conventional wisdom is Raffensperger is going to lose a primary because yeah. this is Donald Trump's party. But if he does, and if he loses based on him telling the facts and Jody Heiss telling conspiracy theories that aren't true, that does present a target of opportunity for the Democrat. So Bin Nguyen uh, would be the first Vietnamese American uh, Secretary of State in Georgia if elected. Uh, she's running for the post. Uh, you know, her advisors and her party are telling her like, look, let, you know, let's, let's watch the Republicans implode and yeah. let, let's, let's run a campaign based on integrity and facts and kind of doing your job and, and not 
going all in with a cult of personality. And considering the presidential election and the Senate races in on January 5th, that might be a good strategy. Well, I, I got to tell you, you know, when I was down there in in Georgia covering those those runoffs, uh, I, I, to the point where I I almost even think that electorally you should you should look at those two runoff elections very much kind of in their own pocket universe because when I was there in Dalton, Georgia, covering the Trump rally, there were a lot of people there in the dead of night in a very very cold evening. And not a lot of them were very excited to vote the next day. And lo and behold, both of the Democrats won. So Georgia is a mess. And I want to get into the kind of minutia of Georgia in a second. But first, I want to uh, zoom out a little bit to to take a look at, at the more you know spiritual battle for these candidates, Liz Cheney and Brad Raffensperger, that, that you, I think, very astutely linked together. Is is part of this a, a no-lose situation for either of them that either they redefine the rules of the road in a party they've spent their entire career in, or they're kind of ready-made media plugins uh, because they have been so stridently opposed to Trump? Good question. One of the quotes I didn't use from Raffensperger is he, he quoted a pastor who said, if I, if I win, I win. If I lose, I win because I'm doing the will of the Lord. That gives you an idea of where Raffensperger is. This guy is no liberal. Okay. Um, he'll probably go back to his engineering firm. He's independently wealthy. He's not a political professional. Yes, he was in the state legislature before being elected secretary of state, but he's definitely kind of a, a you know a, a businessman, not a politician type. Liz Cheney obviously is a daughter of political royalty and Dick Cheney, so she probably has more political aspirations than than Raffensperger does. Uh, history does turn. Uh, the question is, what shape does it make? Does it come full circle? Does it go 180 degrees? I'm I'm not sure about how the Republican Party moves on from Trump eventually, and and w- where it goes from there. You know, Liz Cheney is is certainly in the process of being excommunicated from the current Republican Party, the party of Trump. Obviously, there has to be an election, and maybe she can pull it off. And yes, if she pulls this off, and if Raffensperger pulls this off, it's that's going to be uh, that's going to be big news because it would show that Donald Trump's endorsement uh, isn't the political kryptonite, the the supermen and superwomen, I guess, in this case, of of the Republican Party's uh, anti-Trump resistance. But, you know, right now, a lot of the polling and just a lot of the political folks you talk to in in each of those states, Raffensperger and Cheney are probably doomed. Yeah, uh, uh, certainly when when Donald Trump writes out his kill bill enemies list, uh, those two are, are are at the top. You know, there's I think like Brian Kemp and and in terms of like inter Republican uh, uh, targets, there are there are a few, uh, uh, you know, maybe maybe a Mitt Romney. But but uh, other than that, like like these seem to be the ones that he fixates on. Uh, uh, over and over and over again. So let's let's get into that. Donald Trump has certainly been active in Georgia. Uh, he has, you know, is is getting credit for bringing Herschel Walker to the table for a big Senate race. He just announced a massive financial haul. Uh, from your reporting, it sounds like very much people on the ground are believing that that this is very much still Trump's peach state. Oh, very much is. I mean, it's it's Trump's party. Uh, you know, I, some people have extrapolated from some of the current polling that shows that a majority of, of Republicans don't necessarily want to run for re-election again. 
you know, I think that's kind of dangerous if you were to use the same sort of lens to analyze the 2019 candidates for the 2020 cycle on the Democratic side. Well, Joe Biden would have never won. You know, he had 70 percent of the Democratic Party in early polling being opposed. Right. That's not yeah. how polling works. But yes, the, the reality is, is Donald Trump does know something about politics. He knows something about his base and he knows something about star power. So that's kind of where Herschel Walker, you know, fits in kind of magically in that equation. Now, you know, Walker might have some baggage. Uh, you know, he's, he's had some business dealings, which can be questioned. Yeah, he's had some uh, domestic violence related issues, which he's going to eventually have to explain. But the fact is, is that he is half of a really remarkable story about race and progress and the deep South. You're going to have likely, likely, you know, Walker hasn't gotten on the primary yet, but likely two black men uh, running for Senate with one of them being a black incumbent uh, from Georgia. That's that's that's. Yeah, that that is that is that is going to be a fascinating contest should everything come down to it, because uh, they both seem to be very charismatic candidates, although we have not seen Herschel on the uh, on on the trail just yet. But basically, one of the the things I I should add is, you know, we do talk a lot about Trump, but one of the fundamental things that Republicans will talk about and Democrats will privately venture, you know, uh, wring their hands about Donald Trump's not president. Joe no. Biden is. And Joe Biden's poll numbers are collapsing both nationwide and in states like Georgia. And already there is the sort of political gravity that presidents face in their midterm when their party hemorrhages support in Congress. So don't underestimate the potential toxicity of Joe Biden to counteract the potential toxicity of Donald Trump in a state like Georgia. That's an important kind of countervailing force that we kind of have to consider. So, you know, you have November, you have January, respectively, the presidential and the Senate runoffs that wound up being more anti-Trump than pro-Trump. And now Biden has a record. Now Biden has kind of a bad record currently as it regards his approval ratings. Uh, That probably changes the dynamic a bit as well. Now, if you look at Raffensperger being very aggressive toward Trump, you can't help but compare it to the man at the top of the state Republican Party, and that is Brian Kemp, the governor. He has tried to keep a bit of a low profile and specifically keep Trump's name out of his mouth up till this point. Who knows how viable that is going to be when Donald Trump is doing rallies in his state, all but endorsing Stacey Abrams, which is a fascinating moment in that uh, uh, political cycle. But how is Kemp handling all of this in comparison to Raffensperger from your point of view? Depending on your your point of view, Kemp is either handling it incredibly well and smartly or he's being a coward. But the reality is, is that Donald Trump had desperately wanted to, to recruit top shelf candidate to take Georgia governor Brian Kemp in a primary. And yeah. Trump has been unable to do it. And when he did the stage in Georgia and, and mock endorse former gubernatorial candidate and likely future gubernatorial candidates, Stacey Abrams, it, it did rub a lot of Republicans the wrong way. But Kemp knows that it is Donald Trump's party and that 
there's no win for him uh, going, you know, the full Raffensburger. So you know, he's one of those shut up and just take it kind of guys. Now, the calculation there is if he does make it out of the primary, Brian Kemp, then yeah. in the general election, he might be pretty well established to look like kind of that independent uh, governor that people would want to reelect. Like, hey, look, Donald Trump took it to me. Uh, you know, that, that could message to your, your more centrist swingy voters. And, you know, Republican voters can look at his record. He's governed as quite a conservative. So there is that. Now, you know, predicting what's going to happen in the primary and then what's going to happen in the election beyond is, is tricky, especially in a state like Georgia. It's, you know, though I'm based in Florida and I've covered Florida more, I can say that, you know, Georgia right now is much more dynamic and, and less predictable than Florida. So, you know, hang on to the seat of your pants. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, I guess the only other thing that I could see is that for as violent as Trump's temper is with the people that he believes have wronged him, he is certainly not incapable of forgetting past grievances if he believes that a better future for him lies with you as an ally and not an enemy. From your reporting, is there any sense that that part of this, uh, the calculus for Kemp is, hey, the longer I lay low, eventually, if I if I win the primary, then at the very least, he stays out of my hair and doesn't actively campaign against me. And maybe even there's some uh, reconciliation down the road. I haven't got any sense in talking to Kemp's people and people are familiar with the governor's that He has any belief that Donald Trump is going to lay off. They do have a yeah. belief that if he does survive the primary criticism might be beneficial in the end for the reasons I had outlined before. It could be kind of appealing to centrist voters, swing voters who don't want to elect a Trump cultist. Uh, that said, you ask any candidate like from any party, would you want the, the president or former president and leader of your party trashing you publicly? They would answer no. <laughs> they're, they're, they're certainly not fans of this. There was a lot of head shaking. Uh, Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, had said that when Donald Trump mock endorsed uh, Stacey Abrams, that it, it quote, spit in the face of Republicans. Now, he, he says, and, and others I've spoken to, that that it has left sort of a bad taste in people's mouths. And they're thinking, well, hey, look, we love Donald Trump on judges. Uh, we love the, the way he, you know, he handled immigration uh, and, and, and tax issues, but they're, they're a little sick of him and, and they don't want to lose the state and they fear that he could cost him that. And that's, you know, circle back to Raffensperger and elections and the administration of elections. That's just one of the big problems that Republicans have with Donald Trump in Georgia. His, his messaging tells a lot of Republican voters, your vote's not going to count, that there's all of this fraud. Again, there wasn't, but, you know, his base believes him. And, you know, that's a, that's a tricky tightrope to walk is saying there's all of this fraud and they're going to cheat and blah, blah, blah. But hey, show up and vote anyway. Right. Well, and that's, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that, that to me is a gigantic question. But when I was there at that rally in Dalton, he had a bunch of people that again, were out in the middle of the night in the middle of nowhere that had to walk uh, 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 miles and miles from where they parked to go get to that airfield, clear security. And yet none of them were excited to go vote. I would have expected at some point Donald Trump could pivot to any of the litany of grievances that that he is uh, so talented at at finding to bash 
the people that are in power. And he's certainly done that. He has made ample uh, work of the foibles of the Biden administration up till this point. But what he hasn't done is laid off the the great deception of, of, of 2020 in his in his opinion. I don't think that's a recipe to 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 get out the vote. Uh, but I guess for the for the state of Georgia and the Republican Party therein, they just have to roll with it, I guess. Well, basically, that's the case. There's also a bit of an, an internal Republican Party feud here. You have the, the GOP chair, Schaefer, and Kemp, the governor. They, they don't see eye to eye at all. Like the, the Kemp people are, you know, think that the, the chair of the Georgia GOP is essentially worthless, that he's just basically a Trump toady and that he's not doing the care and feeding of the party in the state that he needs to do. So that, that's an additional complication that Republicans face. So when it comes to voter registration and all these other kind of nuts and bolts things, of you know, strategies, tactics that uh, parties typically handle, the Kemp folks are kind of handling that stuff in-house. They're, they're not relying on the state party chair, state GOP in Georgia, because they don't trust them. All right. Well, uh, if if I have you here, I, I am going to have to ask you a few Florida questions because you definitely know that state uh, as well as anybody, by my opinion, in 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 the working media. So uh, uh, where are we at now in that governor's race? DeSantis, obviously the incumbent. Uh, uh, we'll get to him in a second, but I want to focus on the Democrats real quick. Charlie Crist and Nikki Freed are the two biggest names on in, in, in that primary, uh, by your view, how is that shaping out so far? Yeah. Nikki Fried is winning the, the Twitter primary. Now Twitter's not real life. Uh, Twitter is heavily democratic, you know, something like 10% of the users produce about 90% of the tweets and about 70% of those high prolific tweeters are Democrats. Uh, mm-hmm. so that's something to take into account. So she's doing a really good job on social media. She's been positioning herself as the anti-DeSantis. You know, Charlie Chris just has more experience running statewide, more name ID, uh, an ability to raise lots of money himself, uh, and, you know, might might appear to be more of kind of the Biden-like figure who could win the state in a primary than kind of the the younger, more progressive. Uh, That's a a race that we're going to really have to see change now. Uh, There's a possibility that Charlie Crist's old 2014 running mate, State Senator Annette Pompeo, might enter the race actually against him and against Nikki Freed. Uh, but while it looks like it would be against him, it would almost potentially be an aid to him because if the electorate breaks down along gender lines and the women vote for the woman and the men vote for the man in the Democratic primary, well, Nikki Fried would probably win that. Now, if there's another woman in the mix, you know, that, that, that could change things. Uh, too many dynamics, too much time, uh, not, not enough campaigning for me to really be able to handicap that. I try not to handicap races in general. Uh, but Ron DeSantis, you know, he's raised tens of millions of dollars. He has governed the state like the most far-right cartoon version of himself that Democrats had predicted he would be, right? Uh, he is acting as if not only that this was never a swing state, that it's not even really a battleground state, that we're almost as red as Oklahoma. And maybe he's yeah. right. Uh, the Democrats... You know, in the end, elections are about one thing, getting more votes than the other. And in order to do that, you have to have generally more voters than the other guy. And one of the ways you do that is you have more voter registration than the other party. And Democrats 
ever since Obama, who who did a lot of voter registration in 2008 and 2012, in Florida, they, they haven't done the spade work, the the tilling of the soil to prepare the ground for having more voters. They're not doing it. And the margin between Republican and Democratic voters has incredibly shrunk. Now, that's not a perfect measurement of how an election is going to shake out, but it just gives you an idea that Democrats are not doing the nuts and bolts work. And that's problematic. And then when you look at the fact that it is the Democratic president's first midterm, uh, and that typically means trouble for his party. And when you look at the fact that an incumbent governor in Florida tends to win re-election, I think the last guy who lost was like 1890, right? Yeah. So that would have been, uh, why, why, am I bl- why am I blanking on the man that Lawton Childs beat? Oh, my God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I should Google it uh, as, as we speak. I'm, I'm having a senior moment. Um, uh, so, you know, those Bob Martinez, by the way. OK, um, there we go. Yeah, those, you know, those those factors suggest that, you know, Ronald or. That Ron DeSantis feels comfortable about not only where he is, but with how conservative Florida is. That's a big bet. But, you know, his political antenna has been pretty well attuned. Now, that said, he, he does have an eye, regardless of how he's going to deny it on maybe running for president in 2024 if Trump doesn't. And a lot of his moves in the state have certainly made him a Republican heartthrob nationwide in the GOP. On the Senate and, and, side- and, yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the polling the polling that you would reference earlier with Trump would, would tend to back that up as he is either running equal or if not in some recent ones ahead of the former president. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I doubt I doubt he's running ahead. I would, I would question those. Uh, Me too. Like in most- you know, the, the way Holzer should poll the Republican primary in 2024 at this point, the early horse race, is a primary with Trump and a primary without Trump. And a Trumpless primary, DeSantis is pretty clearly the front runner. Uh, you know, that, that's kind of fluctuated depending on how COVID has ravaged the state. It really, really hit hard here in August and September. Uh, the Senate race in Florida... Val Demings just raised a whopping $8.6 million to Senator Marco Rubio's $6 million. So she's, she's doing the things she needs to do in terms of raising money. Uh, she's an exciting and interesting candidate. Uh, she'd be the first black woman uh, from Florida to be senator if elected. Uh, also, while she's pretty liberal in many of her social policies, she's a former police chief. Uh, mm-hmm. So the defund the police stuff is probably not going to work as effectively against her as it is perhaps against other uh, candidates. But that having been said, I, I still default to the fact that the Democratic Party hasn't done the things it needs to do. And uh, Florida has been trending more and more right uh, since the Obama era. So you know, even if you look at Val Demings' Facebook post, she acknowledges this is going to be a really hard race. Uh, I, I think uh, she is being even more honest than, than most people would give her credit for it. It's going to be a tough battle. You know, Marco Rubio, while widely derided and loathed by the left, certainly on social media, he's nevertheless a pretty solid candidate. His profile is in a state like Florida. I mean, he won in 2010. He won re-election in 2016 by a pretty big margin in the general election. So, you know, he's 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 looking in okay shape, especially if you look at his approval ratings. He, he is above water. That is more voters like what he's doing than dislike what he's doing. Those are all pretty good signs for him. 
I mean, yeah, he 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 won a, a re-election in 2016 after he had to be, you know, dragged by uh, his collar back into the race when he was by right. by at least the reporting wanted to take a gig at the Dolphins. So, uh, uh, I, oh yeah, I, I think if he would have gotten if, if Rubio would have gotten a job with the Dolphins, he probably would have taken. It. Yeah, Rubio got seriously drubbed in the 2016 primary by Trump. I, you know, some, yeah. well, I think it was March 15th. I, he. Marco Rubio lost 66 of 67 counties to Trump in that time. The yeah. only one he won was his home county of Miami. Uh, now that that said, he, he, you know, I think Mitch McConnell practically begged him to come back. Yeah. And uh, he then went on to, to post one of the biggest uh, lopsided margins uh, in a general election win in a Senate race in Florida when he defeated Patrick Murphy. the time. So, you know, that that's. That goes to show that, yeah, while Marco Rubio might have some base problems, you know, statewide in a general election, he's, he's a tough candidate to beat. He's bilingual. Uh, 17% of the voters in the state are Hispanic. A lot of them are no party affiliation registered voters, uh, which is a sign that they are swingy and gettable. And yeah. if you would have looked at the 2020 election results, especially in Miami-Dade, which is the, the largest county in the state, the state with the most Hispanic people, uh, you know, Trump made huge gains among Hispanic voters. And it wasn't just uh, Republican leaning Cuban Americans. It wasn't just among Venezuelan Americans. It was among Colombian Americans, Nicaraguan Americans, uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, and, and perhaps even some Mexican Americans. So it was, it was, it was quite a sweep by him. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the reason why I think Rubio is uniquely difficult to beat because for for folks who are novices to Florida politics. If you're the Democrat, you got to blow out the Republican in Miami-Dade, Broward and Palm Beach, like or else you don't have a shot like that. That's where that's where your votes live. And if Rubio's strong there, then it's going to be hard you to, are correct. Uh, to to overtake him. Just Miami-Dade uh, alone. Thing, yeah. One more thing about DeSantis and then I'll, and I'll, get, I'll get you out of here because pre-Delta. He seemed to be very much ready to kind of run a uh, a, a bit of a victory lap as as the the governor that kept things open and yep. uh, uh, per capita wasn't uh, uh, out of whack with the rest of the country in terms of its cases and deaths. Delta comes in, affects a lot of the South, but uh, it really, 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 really damaging to Florida. Uh, where is DeSantis now in terms of? His COVID, uh, his COVID policy, his vaccination policy. Uh, he had been, you know, I, I remember a time when the criticism to him was that he was vaccinating the wrong people too quickly, but that didn't seem to save him for for the the, the Delta surge. Yeah, well, boy, we we could spend probably two hours talking about that. Uh, <laughs> bottom line is, DeSantis has shown signs that he's recovered losses among Republicans. I, he he did for a time, and he first started out as governor, have a little more support among Democrats than many would have figured. He's lost that. And he's probably never going to gain it back because, as I'd said before, he's just gotten more and more right. Uh, independents are a little bit of a mixed bag. I don't know how they're performing for him. I haven't seen any recent polling in Florida. Um, but, you know, Florida ha was a little bit of a mystery, even, you know, when he was victory lapping, because, like, it, it didn't really hit Florida hard, despite a lot of the media coverage. Florida's yeah. death rate from COVID was 27th in the nation before February yeah, or in February, which is the last time I, I, I looked at it. And then Delta happened and we went till about ninth in the nation. 
in death. Yeah. Killed a lot of people. Now there's a bunch of factors there. Yeah, sure. People probably should have worn masks, but masks aren't magic. And by the way, all of the cases in Florida collapsed almost as fast as they exploded without a statewide mask mandate. Uh, Epidemiologists are going to probably have to do a little more explaining about that uh, going forward. Um, It did hit us really hard, even though Florida was relatively well vaccinated compared to other states. Uh, You know, I have have a theory that it's it's a combination of things, including culture. There were a lot of people who weren't scared of it. And the reality is, is like we still have a lot of older people here in the state. Yeah. And well, yeah, if you have 65% of people, I'm just looking at numbers, vaccinated who are over the age of 65, that still leaves you 35% of the people. That's millions of people. So, uh, you know, the bottom line here is when Delta came, what was noteworthy about DeSantis was his utter defiance and not only refusing to do mask mandates, but pushing uh, for a ban on vaccine passports. Uh, trying to ban local school boards from having mask mandates among kids and staff. And now uh, fighting uh, vaccine mandates from employers. Uh, you know, his, his administration is currently taking a very generous read of legislation they passed in the last lawmaking session to suggest that you can't have a vaccine mandate uh, in the state. You can. Uh, the the way they're reading it is kind of deceptive and, and misleading. So the administration, for instance, has fined the uh, Leon County. Leon County is where Tallahassee is, a state capital. They fined them recently for firing workers who refused to get uh, vaccinated. And if you look at the plain language of the statute, the state doesn't have a right to, to slap those fines on Leon County. So he's being incredibly aggressive in pursuing this uh, this policy, which the Republicans would call a, you know, a, a freedom policy, Democrats, independents, and a lot of epidemiologists probably call it insane. But yeah. so far, there's not a lot of signs that it's hurting him politically when you look at his poll numbers. Well, and, and that I think is the biggest question, not only in Florida, but also countrywide, that by the time this midterm comes up where you have a lot of these big governor's mansions up for grabs, exactly how much of COVID world will be on election day, a little over a year from today, uh, because I think now uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of moves that are very much sort of affected by this bizarre year and a half that everybody has gone through. And and who knows how much of this is the new normal or something that will recede, uh, especially I think you put it perfectly, Mark. Uh, Florida is a mystery that could really much be its own sentence <laughs> on so many uh, of its uh, so so many facets. Uh, Mark Caputo has been our guest. Uh, uh, continue to read his work in Politico. Uh, 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 keep up the good work, Mark. Thank you much. I appreciate it. And uh, look forward to coming back on. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to thank Mark Caputo for coming on the show, And I would really appreciate it if you guys did. This kind of stuff really matters, especially when we're talking to folks that we don't talk to all the time. Head on over there to px3guest.com. If you'd like to email the show, you could do so at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. That's the Twitter for the show. You can watch our live streams at px3live.com. You can share this podcast with your friends and family at px3podcast.com. And our merch can be found at politicsmerch.com. 
paypal.com. You want to make a one-time payment to the show, you can do so. paypal.me slash payjury. Our Venmo is justin-young-20. Been a while since somebody's tested the theory on whether or not Venmo money is real. So I would encourage you guys to go ahead and do that. Just go ahead, Justin-Young-20. Just try $1 right now. I'll tell you if it's real. Our cash app is PX3Cash. And if you'd like to send anything physical in the mail, it is P.O. Box 153184, Austin, Texas, 78715. The only way you can get our bonus content weekly is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Brings you to our Patreon page. Get your custom RSS feed. Put it in the podcatcher of your choice. Set it and forget it, friends. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we missed on our free podcast schedule. $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Including Idris Arzlanian, DJ Caddy Mac, Neemeister, Dr. G, Lord Scale, Dekinse Anile, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicari, 70s TV salesman or spy. D, really? And vote Gloria Young for king of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dotcom Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Pop Gold, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Double K Ranch, Yield Pinball Shop, John. Snubbies, Off Route 44, Neil. Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy. Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, D Laser, just another pilot, middle aged Mike, The Jen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. Join the ranks. Head on over right now. Take politics and that'll wrap it up for us today. Our next episode on Friday will be supply chain intensive. Supply chain intensive. Uh, you guys have actually sent me a lot of your own stories. Apparently, we've got a lot of folks who listen to the show that are involved in the supply chain. We've gotten a few great emails on the subject. If you want to send me another one, uh, please do so at theyoungamerican at gmail. Dot com of things that you're either seeing or if you're a professional in the industry, all anonymity will be respected. But we are joined by our supply chain correspondent, James Thatcher, a 20-year veteran in the imports game. We break down exactly what the problem is, whether or not what Joe Biden did is in any way effective, and we get into some of the hard stuff, which is, are we going to have Christmas shortages? And more seriously, are we going to have heating shortages? All of it is explained. Friday on the show. Till then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics. Still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show. By the way, Mel Brooks and Nick Crawl, Call Me for History of the World Part 2 with...
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.